Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 10th, 2020. I am John Podhorst, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hey, John. So, Bob Woodward's, uh, the first uh, articles about Bob Woodward's book coming out next week, Rage, uh, dominating the news. We've got... uh, Trump cabinet members talking to each other about whether or not they're somehow going to have to stage a coup against him. We've got, um, uh, and of course we've got uh, we've got Jared Kushner comparing Trump to the Cheshire Cat, and then we've got Trump himself talking in uh, March about the deadliness of the virus. I think March or February, I can't even remember which. Um, Abe, what's your take? Well, the aspect of the Woodward book that I saw most people running with and running with relentlessly was Trump's comments on the virus and his downplaying of the initial scale of the threat. Um, but I thought immediately, this is very old news. What What is new in this? It was back in April that Trump himself explained to the nation at a White House press conference that... Yes, he downplayed uh, the initial reports because he doesn't want the country to panic and because he's a cheerleader for the country. And that meanwhile, while he was downplaying things, uh, he was also this was this was his explanation. He was also enacting all sorts of policies to protect the protect the country. He was um, working on the China travel ban when everyone said he shouldn't. And things of that nature. So I thought, well, this is um, we've gotten to the point where there are so many news cycles that open and close so quickly. And so many of them are so similar, especially regarding Trump, that you can almost um, reuse the more explosive ones as we get near to the election um, and people react as if they haven't heard them before. And indeed, I think a lot of people had forgotten entirely this whole saga. Right. Christine. Well, um, I agree with everything Abe said, and I, and I had recalled Trump explaining himself in that way as well. I'm, I'm always struck by this. The one thing about this uh, most recent Bob Woodward uh, book that struck me immediately is that, you know, Bob Woodward has this reputation of kind of like, you know, descending from the journalistic Mount Olympus every few years to, you know, opine and tell us all about the character of the person we have elected as our leader and everybody applauds him for it. And, but in this case, he comes across more like Captain Kangaroo because he's dealing with someone who doesn't really care about character, who the country elected because they very clearly didn't care about his character. So all these supposed revelations of his character fall flat not that they don't matter. That's a different thing. Like, I mean, clearly this this shows that lots of people who were very close to Trump, including, you know, General Jim Mattis and others who were around him, were very concerned about what about his judgment, um, which does, in fact, flow from character. So I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of, of that assessment. But in terms of what, it, you know, the, the Woodward impact on the coming election, I actually find that this is not going to be as much. I, I just don't think it's it's revealing anything we didn't already know, which says something about the American electorate at this particular moment in time and, and as it did in, in, you know, a few years ago. So okay. I just thought that I didn't find it all that shocking. Noah? Um, yeah, ag- agreed. Uh, it's bad. It's politically bad. Um, it's morally questionable. Um, but at least you understand the logic behind the not wanting to scare people thing. Nevertheless, the scale of the political outrage that we've seen is entirely tethered to the election, in part because the sainted Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted that we lied about masks. We lied to you. We literally lied to you. We had no choice. We had to lie to you. A lot more people would have died otherwise, but it was a it was a triage at that point. We had to make a bargain, and uh, the what we focused on was making sure that our medical personnel were safe and that you general populace were not Um, the scale of the outrage that, uh, you know, resulted from that revelation could not be measured. It simply did not exist um, in part because of the image making around Anthony Fauci as a foil for Trump. What I don't understand by all these revelations is this weird backlash against Bob Woodward from the center left and particularly reporters and journalists and editorialists at smaller media outlets saying, why didn't they come out with this revelation sooner? As though that would have mattered at all. The only effect that I can think of 
if you push this out earlier, would have been that would have less political salience and resonance now when it actually matters as a political argument. Okay, so here's here's my take. Again, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but this is all we're talking about is about the um, the delayed the president saying, you know, I downplayed the scale of the virus and I downplayed the airborne transmission in order to not panic you and not panic the stock market, as opposed to all the other revelations that we've heard about from like Jim Kelly and Jim Mattis about how this guy is, you know, an unstable figure and we have to have plans in the event that he tries to scuttle the country. Right. Okay. So the conversation that he had with Woodward saying this is a very deadly thing was February 7th. Okay. It's very deadly. Apparently it's airborne. This is no joke. Now, thinking back, uh, Trump is somebody who everybody says is very affected by the last person that he spoke to. And uh, we've been doing this daily podcast for since March. And I would say that if you went back and listened to the first two months of the podcast, you would see that we that we went from one extreme to the other day by day based on what we were hearing. Now, we're not the president of the United States. We're just people reading the papers and, you know, trying to analyze what's going on. But one day we would say, my God, this is terrible. The other day it's like, I don't know. There's something fishy about these numbers. Uh, maybe the lockdown, you know, all of that. And I think very much the same thing was going on in the White House and in the precincts that Trump was around in January, February, and March. Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, said to him, this could be the worst thing that you will deal with as president in January. But if Fauci and Burks and everybody else is saying, you know what, people shouldn't wear masks, and somebody says one thing on February 7th to Trump that says this thing could be airborne, and it's really deadly if it's airborne, and then two hours later somebody says, it's not airborne, it's mostly on surfaces, he could be flipping all over the place, hour by hour, and therefore be as inconstant about this as everybody was. Everybody was. Nobody knew what to make of this. It was an unprecedented situation. By definition, unprecedented situations mean that your response is going to be halting, confused, and sloppy in the early going. The difference here is that, as I say, we're just writers, journalists, thinkers trying to make sense out of it. He's the president of the United States. He's not supposed to be going around musing uh, in phone interviews with hostile reporters about what's going on and then revealing all kinds of things to them because he has no inner filter and doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut when he needs to keep it shut, including according to Woodward, basically revealing that we have some super secret nuclear weapon that uh, he was thinking of using on North Korea in 2017. Um, Presidents of the United States are supposed to be more contained and controlled than this. And uh, if he is now going to reap the whirlwind from having said in February oh my God, this is airborne, this is really deadly, he'll deserve it because nobody did it but him. Now, here's my confused take, which is, you know, Joe Biden jumped on this, said he's killed thousands of people and people are saying all this. It doesn't make sense, even elementary sense, if Trump believed solidly from February onward that this was an airborne virus that was going, it was incredibly deadly and was going to kill people by the tens and hundreds of thousands for him to downplay it. Like that doesn't make any, it doesn't make any logical sense for him not to say, oh my God, we better prepare for this. He clearly didn't think that it was going to be as bad as it turned out to be. Otherwise his behavior is not only inexplicable, it is, insanely self-destructively psychotic. It doesn't it doesn't make any rational sense not to say, oh my God, you know, trouble's coming, like, you know, batten down the hatches for his own solipsistic self-protection. So I am I am oddly, you know, I mean we criticize him all the time and we criticized him over the way he talks about China, I'm happy to criticize him over this horrible stuff he says about 
Kim and and North Korea and various other things in in you know in the interview. I haven't read the book yet. Obviously, it's not around, but the articles reveal. But this notion that somehow he has blown the whistle on himself and revealed that he wanted thousands of people to die because he wanted to pretend that the virus wasn't as serious as it was does not make any rational sense. It is not a rational behavior. When he says he wants to cheerlead for the country, he could only cheerlead for the country if he doesn't know that his cheerleading and and the refusal to lock the country down or do whatever it was that needed to be done wasn't going to kill tens of thousands, wasn't going to lead to the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Look, as you said, um, that the nobody knew what they were talking about in early February. This was early February when even the president's uh, most politi- committed, pol- committed political adversaries were talking about this as though it wasn't as bad as the flu. Nobody knew. But what did, and it's not like there's no precedent here. What did the, what did Barack Obama do the day he announced a national emergency around the swine flu? He went golfing. He went golfing, yes. Deliberately <laughs> in order to con- to convey that you should continue with your lives and not panic. Not eliciting panic is something that mature, responsible leaders do. Okay. The problem now, is that Donald wait, Trump wait, wait, is wait. not that responsible leader. He is not above eliciting panic. He has spent his entire presidency inciting panic and fear within his voters and his base in particular, but the country in general. So the notion that he is so committed to political stability here is just nonsense and very difficult. One quick thing to John's point though, that I think is true is that he he's also, we do know from his past character and behavior that he's kind of incapable of keeping a secret. So the idea that this was somehow some big secret he was keeping from the country, I agree with John is not feasible. Um, both because it is similar to the a lot of the rhetoric that was being used on the Hill. I think we can certainly fault him for not being better at briefing Congress and and you know dealing with dealing with the logistical challenges of a potential potentially you know disastrous pandemic. That's absolutely on the table. But the idea that he was somehow secretly sitting there, you know, knowing hundreds of thousands would die and just being like, "Bwahaha, I'm not going to reveal this," is is it's ridiculous. In June. Uh, Jim Meggs, our tech commentary columnist, published a piece, uh, excuse me, in May called Elite Panic versus the Resilient Populace. We talked about it with Jim on the podcast. This was about a uh, an earthquake in, um, in Alaska and uh, how the earthquake was responded to by the populace and by a radio reporter who ended up sort of leading the recovery charge. And the piece is about something he calls, or disaster researchers call, elite panic. I'm going to quote from what Jim wrote. When authorities believe their own citizens will become dangerous, they begin focusing on controlling the public rather than on addressing the disaster itself. They clamp down on information, restrict freedom of movement, and devote unnecessary energy to enforcing laws they assume are about to be broken. As in war, the first casualty in disasters is often the truth. One symptom of elite panic is the belief that too much information or the wrong kind of information will send citizens reeling. And this, so it turns out, Trump saying, I I wanted to downplay the virus because I wanted to cheerlead and I wanted to make sure that people didn't panic is just a classic leadership, bad leadership tool that is a classic problem in unprecedented situations. And far from being the disruptor who breaks all the China and the crockery and does, he did exactly what anybody else probably would have done in this situation, which was to stand there like Chip Diller in National Lampoon's Animal House while the entire town is melting down going, you know, all is well, don't pay any attention, all is well. Or Frank Drebin in Police Squad while a fireworks factory is blowing up behind him saying, Nothing to see here, nothing to see here. This is how elites deal with crises. They panic, and they assume that everybody else is going to panic, and they need to keep them calm. They have to keep calm, and they need to be kept calm, rather than informing uh, a self-governing citizenry that the crisis is coming and that you need to prepare which would not necessarily mean immediate lockdown. It would not necessarily mean mandating masks or anything. It means coming before them and telling the truth 
and saying, we don't really know what's going on, but this is really scary. And cheerleading or not cheerleading and having political footballs and all of that is a preposterous way for this to be handled. It's preposterous, but it is conventional. That's the whole point here is that Trump did an entirely conventional thing by wanting to pretend that the virus wasn't going to be as bad as it was because he didn't want it to be, number one. And number two, because even if he had not, when he said, this is deadly, it's airborne, then what? I mean, then what? This was a process that went on for two months before everybody somehow came to the conclusion that we needed to lock down and put much of the nation in quarantine, which is still a controversial and, and remember that, that the official word out of organizations like the World Health Organization was not that it was airborne, was not that it was that deadly. The numbers coming out of China were being cooked, obviously. And, and so that there was actually the global opinion was as deeply confused as it was here at home. So right. I, I, I it mean, was not until July. It was not until July that the Centers for Disease Control said that the virus was airborne. I think that's WHO, actually. Was it WHO? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they finally it was said not July. Yeah. until July. So when Trump says in February, this thing is airborne, he was simply parroting something that had been said to him because there were three, there were various possible, possib- you know, philosophies or whatever, ideologies here. One was that it was on surfaces and people were getting it on surfaces, which was clearly what was believed since we have been living with cleanliness theater now for seven months where people are just scrubbing and scrubbing and everybody spends two hours a day cleaning and cleaning and cleaning all of these, you know, movie theaters and schools and this and that and the other thing. You had to leave your groceries in the garage for three days until the milk spoiled. Right. I mean, all, all that <laughs> stuff. And it turns out if it is airborne, that it's not on surfaces. Like it's much easier to catch something that's airborne than it is to catch it from surfaces. And yet we are still living in the world in which we're cleaning it, where everything is being scrubbed. The in you know, public industrial complex doesn't right. want you to believe it was airborne. Yeah. So <laughs> so there is a dis- – I, I don't think that the response, the horrified response to what Trump said is disingenuous because, yeah, people forget and they forget that he said that he was cheerleading and he wanted to downplay it. I think they do forget and therefore they're horrified that he said it in February and that's a real response. I don't think that this is just liberals, you know, trying to get Trump. And on the other hand, uh, it is incumbent upon, uh, you know, serious analysts to look at this and say, what what would he have believed on February 7th? Like he could have believed one thing in the morning and another thing in the afternoon and another thing in the evening. We all did. And he ha- was not the recipient of secret Gnostic information that the rest of us didn't have. And if he had been, in my view, he would have been tougher. I mean, you know, he, it's not as though shutting down the flights from, you know, uh, from China that Trump would have found it impossible to shut down flights from Europe, right? That was the whole, the whole thing that we were then told is why was everything so bad in New York? It wasn't because the virus came from China. It was that it probably came from Italy, well, Trump doesn't like NATO. He would have been perfectly happy to shut flights down from Italy or from or from the EU. What does he care? He hates the EU. He <laughs> hates, you know. <laughs> I mean, so this idea that he was, you can maybe say that he was cavalier, but you cannot say that he did this with malice aforethought because that's insane. Like, why would he if he knew that, people were going to die in the numbers that they've died. And it's not just Trump. I mean, if if Trump, if there were recordings of, of Trump saying back in the early days of this thing in February, what Anthony Fauci was saying, for example, that people should be more worried about the flu um, than about this, um, people would be absolutely outraged. But that was there, this this version of elite panic or of sort of watching and waiting. Um, this was what everyone was doing, Ex- except there were, a, there were a few instances of like um, very unreasonable, I think, panic and demand that came a little later. Like for, for instance, John, when you're talking about how um, we were zigzagging, you know, from day to day, um, if, there's, if, if, 
when, when Andrew Cuomo was demanding 40,000 ventilators for New York State, um, uh, for example, had Trump then, you know, somehow gone into national stockpiles and pulled every resource in the country to, to get that completely um, overestimated number of ventilators to New York, it would have been crazy. And it would have been a moment of genuine, overt, unnecessary panic. Right. So, yeah. Although, although I just wonder they, whether... did, they did make the ventilators. Right. They just didn't make them in March, but I right. mean, by like by May, they had, they had built forty thousand unnecessary right. ventilators since they'd moved they moved on and decided that the ventilators were killing people. But um, there was this whole debate about well, what 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 is the when Jared Kushner says they're our ventilators? What does our mean? It's, it's the national yeah. stockpile, right. but New York is having the problem. We need them now in New York. You know all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the revelations in this book that are interesting, although not earth shattering, are the quotes from the people around the president who are calling him unfit for office. His former defense secretary saying he is unfit, has no moral compass. His former director of national intelligence saying he doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie. Dr. Anthony Fauci himself saying his attention span is like a minus number. Although Fauci Fauci denies, to be fit, Fauci denies totally having said that. And remember... This is stuff that Woodward gets from other people who say that Fauci said it. Fauci went on Fox yesterday and said he never said it. He never heard Trump saying one thing in private and the other thing in public. If anything, I think he was saying that Trump said everything he heard in private and public. Um, Maybe, but need I remind you that the beatified Dr. Anthony Fauci lied to you. I know, but I'm just saying, fair enough. Yes, but, but to, to yeah. John's point, you know, this is a president who does tweet out like intelligence drone strikes on his Twitter feed. So, I mean, I, I agree. I don't think he's that. I don't think he's playing 3D chess here. Like he just says yeah. what he thinks, whether he's in private or public. Right. So we should talk a little about Mattis and Dan Coates, uh, Mattis, former defense secretary, and Dan Coates, the former senator from Indiana, who was the director of national intelligence. Because they had a conversation, according to uh, Woodward, that everybody is reporting as though it's, why, what the hell, you know, um, which is pretty staggering and actually fits a, uh, a Trump conspiratorial narrative to a T, which is that Mattis said, we better be making plans to do something because he's unfit, meaning he and Coates and various other people should invoke the 25th or, you know, do some kind of a coup or something like that. Um, like, you know, uh, I know that liberals love the idea that the uh, Trump should have been 25th amendment out from basically from about January 21st, 2017 until the present day. But the idea that the defense secretary and the director of national intelligence were actually having open conversations about this is pretty chilling. It, there, there's also it is I completely agree. It's um, two points though. One is that we had this discussion about. I mean, there were rumors about this, you know, many months ago that that we all discussed because stuff was bubbling up in the press. There's also a way to understand what Mattis said as being far more narrow in scope in this sense. Had Trump called for some sort of military action overseas that that Mattis had said no to or that military leaders thought was, you know, uh, dangerous or insane, um, perhaps that was the context, right? To say we have to have a backup plan. We have to have a way of kind of making sure that there's a there's a backstop if he wants to go to war with, you know, a country we don't think that's that's advisable to do. I mean, I think I feel like there are, you know, Woodward's Woodward's agenda I don't think here that's is, a defense. I don't No, think I, that's I'm not defense. defending it. I'm just saying that the, yeah. this idea that that everyone surrounding Trump was in on the on the knowledge that he should be that we should use the 25th amendment to remove him and didn't is I mean, Woodward Woodward's agenda is to go as broad as possible with everything he has, right? Even the stuff that's obviously deep background and, and not uh, sourced all that uh, legitimately. So I, I'm not defending uh, Trump's behavior at all. And I think it's extremely telling that so many of the people who have worked close to him for him and with him over the years do go on the record and say, you know, this guy is not competent. But again, voters kind of knew that, right? They, I mean, they they certainly knew knew a bit of it now, and they will definitely know it going into the election already. So I don't, 
I would have been much more uh, shocked if it, if he, what he revealed as a secret was that Area 51 actually does have aliens in it. Like, that, I mean, right. I just don't, again, yeah. like to, to Abe's earlier point, he's, he's, it's all baked into the cake with Trump. We know this about him. And I just want, it's terrible, like, but we know it. <laughs> I just want to mention one thing. Okay, so Trump says we have some secret, super secret nuclear weapon that no one knows about, right? That's what I want to talk about. Which, yeah. which, which it must be true. I just want to point out that in 1989 or 1991, I can't quite remember when, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, it was revealed that since the late 50s, we had an upper atmosphere plane called the Black Hawk that could fly from California to New York in 60 minutes. And that was a spy plane that existed for almost 40 years that no one knew existed. Every president of the United States from 1959 through George H.W. Bush in 1989 knew of the existence of the Black Hawk. Every defense secretary from then till now, probably every CIA director knew of the existence of this plane. And nobody ever talked about it, ever. It was a secret that was kept for decades and Donald Trump cannot keep his goddamn mouth shut. And it is disgusting. It is, he talk, tells Bob Woodward we have a super secret nuclear weapon? Look, he, he thinks of himself as Harrison Ford in all those clear and present danger movies, but he's actually Nicolas Cage in National Treasure, right? He's like, I'm going to tell everybody everything. Yeah. The conspiracy is. Okay, so uh, far be it from me to apologize for the president here. But if this is what I think it is, it's not exactly a state secret. This, this is probably the y- low-yield, highly penetrable dial-yield bombs that we've been developing since the Obama administration from 2016 and which became a crash program during the confrontation with North Korea because it was under we were under the impression, national security people, according to press reports, were under the impression that North Korean leadership believed it could survive a nuclear exchange that the leadership could bunker itself and that we didn't have the kind of, of penetrable weapons that would present an existential threat to the leadership. And that was why we, this is not a program that the president started himself. It was Barack Obama who greenlit this after eight, seven years of resisting the net, net necessary modernization of the nuclear forces, which were atrophying to the point where we're in the twenties now, which is when a lot of our bombs expire and life extension programs no longer work. That could be true, but it could also, also not be true. It could, it we could not be true, but it's true. also the sort of thing that is not exactly, it's not, we're not giving up state secrets here. Yes, you're not giving up a state secret. We don't know whether Trump gave up a state secret because you don't know that that's what the program is that he was telling Woodward about by definition. That's why you don't mention it at all. Not that you mention it, but it's not that bad. Like, that's what it means to keep a goddamn secret. I mean, it, it, it's mind-blowing, and this is where we get to the question of ultimate fitness and unfitness. Obviously, a person who does this is unfit to be president. Now, it, fitness for presidency means... The voters chose you, you're 35 years old, you're not a felon, and you've been, you know, you're an American citizen. So it's not for me to say that he's fit or unfit. The voters of the United States chose him. He is therefore fit to be president. And Jim Mattis can't decide to coo him out of office because he doesn't like his policies. He can have a conversation about it, I suppose, and you know, in a moment of extremis, like anybody can. And that's why we have a 25th Amendment in case stuff like that happens. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, this is something that the American people will need to be using as a data point, a, a, a datum point to figure out whether or not he is fit to be reelected. Well, that, in that I, sense, the Woodward book is a service because it reveals Trump. It's tapes of Trump talking about issues. It's not fake news. There's no fake news. There's nothing. People can go listen and make up their own minds. Well, it, it's a reminder of something that actually is uh, useful to remember about Trump and his character, which is that he's most um, enlivened and effective at rallying his base when he's on the defensive, right? Attacking the people who've attacked him first. But what I think the Woodward tapes reveal, and particularly when it comes to national security and defense issues, is that 
that's when he's supposed to be the adult in the room, the final decision maker, the one who has to take listen to everything and, the, and then respond. And instead, he's still that other guy in the room who needs someone to attack. And because he has this weird hero worship of, you know, people like him um, and, you know, Putin, he's unable to do that. And he's not comfortable in the role of being the adult in the room, despite all of his, you know, apprentice style, I'm, I'm the boss type stuff. He's very insecure in that role. And it's why before everything's went everything went south with people like Mattis, Trump was kind of had hero worship of, of these generals. Like he always talked about my generals, the generals are so amazing. He He's deeply insecure about his ability to, to be that, you know, leader, quite honestly, not to over psychologize, which I'm obviously doing, but that's what Woodward is right. doing too. I okay. just want to say <clears throat> on the matter of his not being able to keep his mouth shut. I agree with you, John. It's, it's, it's very evident and it's dangerous and it's reckless. But it also mitigates against this idea that Trump is and that the administration is um, secretly scheming to do big things. Right. Because there's no he he's not you know, he's not Nixon in that sense. He there's no he can't hold on to any secret plan at all. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's that that is not the issue. Except for right. infrastructure week, that is the great secret. That's right. the great right. secret of the Trump. Administration. No, but I mean this. This is where we get to the. This is where we get to the the revelations that are important. Are the revelations about him saying that there's a secret nuclear plan, or this horrifying stuff about how cool it is that Kim told him how he murdered his uncle. Kim told him that he killed his uncle with radiation in the Malaysian in the in the airport. Was it in Malaysia? I can't remember. It was in Malaysia, Malaysia, but it was a nerve agent. A nerve agent in Malaysia, and boy, whoo, man, whoo, he's really that was his half brother. His uncle was reportedly either murdered with, I'm remembering, either anti aircraft fire or missile, right? Yeah, right. But that, but wow, that's really cool. This is like him, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, he really loves hearing about how, you know, uh, Tatalia killed, uh, you know, uh, Tatalia killed Luca Brasi. What a cool murder that was where he, you know, spiked his hand with the thing and then strangled him in the club. Like what, what, what's, you know, that's another sort of graphic picture of some kind of an ordinary person would rear in horror from the notion of being told the thrilling story of how I murdered my uncle, but apparently not Trump. So that that's another interesting uh, revelation, and then this general like Kim is great, and why is Kim great? Because he wrote him these fawning letters that Woodward quotes, where he calls him Your Excellency and says he wants to meet him again because it was so exciting meeting him before, and so Trump loves him because he because Kim Kim did for him what the cabinet members did in those early cabinet meetings where they would tape them and everyone would go around the room talking about how wonderful Trump was. You remember that? That was like May, March, April of 2017, where everybody had to sort of go around the table and express their undying fealty to him. Um, that's just bizarre, obviously. So again, I say like, fine, so it's out. So let people judge by it. And if, if, if people want to judge it harshly, they're permitted to judge it harshly. And if they want to judge it in a different way, they're permitted to do that as well. We're, we're, we're uh, eight weeks away from the election or seven well, weeks away from the election. It is, it is though a sign, uh, just the fact that he spoke to Woodward is a sign of such a serious lack of discipline on Trump's part. And I mean, I know Tucker Carlson's trying to blame it all on Lindsey Graham now, but no, he's an adult. He chose to speak to a reporter who he should have known would have been hostile. Um, well, he already of, wrote a hostile book. He exactly. So that much. lack of discipline just shows you that Trump's ego will almost always uh, overcome his his uh, his whatever guidance he might have uh, taken to heart. And I just think that what it also does, and this frustrates me, is that it, it, it will keep the conversation focused on Trump and he's the incumbent. It should be. But there are lots of things we should be asking and discussing about Joe Biden as well in terms of leadership and competence. Not necessarily character, because I think his character compared to Trump's is, is uh, a bit more positive. But like, look, I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't seen a medical uh, record from Joe Biden in 12 years. Um, there are lots of concerns about, you know, his ability to take on the country at this particular moment, given his age. I mean, there are lots of kind of old school, very boring election year issues that aren't even being discussed. And that's Trump's fault if he's he's throwing fuel on this fire. 
Um, so here's <clears throat> what, what, what strikes me. Here's an analogy for you guys. Uh, at the uh, hearing, the first, you know, the day that the the big hearing on 9-11 took place and Condi Rice uh, was testifying uh, before Congress. And that was when they revealed this uh, presidential daily briefing, the intelligence briefing from August 6, 2001, that said Al-Qaeda determined to strike inside U.S. And this then became the incriminating document that showed that Bush knew or should have known that 9-11 was going to happen and he didn't do anything. And therefore, you know, he was either complicit or he failed or he did something terrible. Of course, if you read the document, it was Al-Qaeda is determined to strike inside the U.S. It doesn't say when, doesn't say where, doesn't say, just says the chatter suggests that they are really looking to strike inside the U.S. It doesn't say planes. It doesn't say 19 people, it doesn't say anything. And so, you know, on serious examination, people who would look at this fairly would say this was the opposite of actionable intelligence. It was something that meant that you had to, like, be on high alert, but that there was there was nothing to be gleaned from it. And that as a result of what happened, uh, the laws were changed so that the domestic and foreign intelligence agencies could speak to each other because if you had this CIA actionable intelligence about this, you could not then go to the FBI and say, we better look and see who's going to flight schools in Florida because it was, it was the, the wall between domestic and, uh, you know, and, 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 and the CIA was, was impenetrable. And so the wall was lowered as a result. And that was the right, policy, I think. Um, but this this thing with Woodward, is, I think, is very much the same kind of thing, which is that for the people who want to believe that Trump is evil, this is the thing that means that he's evil, that he is the responsible for these deaths, uh, 200,000 deaths, because he knew and he didn't do anything. I think it's, it is a perfect analogy, um, if you take it further still, because just as um, with Bush and Al-Qaeda, the people who were making this complaint would have lost their minds if President Bush at the time, before there was ever a 9-11, went on some forward-leaning offensive against, um, you know, some huge shock and awe campaign against uh, uh, bin Laden and his cohorts uh, in the Middle East. They, these are people who couldn't tolerate what we did once we were attacked, right? right. That was, and that is, yeah. so, and that is exactly what happened when this disease hit. Absolutely. The yeah. president made a proactive move against China and it was declared racism. And they went on performative displays to hug, hug your local Asian person in Chinatown and, uh, you know, designed to communicate how anti whatever Trump is doing. They, they were. And so, so we're back to this debate about what, well, if he had acted, if Trump had acted a week or two earlier, he would have saved X, Ten, tens of thousands of numbers of lives, the country would have lost its mind. If the president said before anyone was sick or when there were a handful of people sick in the United States, had he said, we must, we, we need a national lockdown, the fascism stories yeah. would have drowned us. I think that's true. Although, you know, what's funny is if, again, go back in time and think about what was going on, and this gets to Jim Meg's point about elite, elite panic and a self-governing citizenry. By early March, which is when people say, or like by sort of the end of February, which is when people say if we'd acted more quickly, you know, more, the public had stopped going out. The American public had stopped going to movie theaters. Uh, it was, I think, March something that uh, Tom Hanks, that basket, the basketball uh, games were canceled. It was announced that Tom Hanks had gotten Corona in, in uh, Australia. But for two weeks before that, no one was going to restaurants. Nobody was going to movie theaters. Movies were being postponed and pulled off the schedule. The public had already decided in major cities, at least uh, all over the place, uh, that it was better to be safe than sorry. And I think that had there been, you know, obviously this is science fiction, had there been a sober, rational, calm, but determined response by saying, 
we have a possible once in a century, you know, black swan event about to happen here. And here's what people should do. They should probably stay home. Mm-hmm. They should probably be wearing masks. They should probably be doing X, Y, or Z. I don't know that tens of thousands of lives would have been saved or not. I don't know that the horrible decisions relating to nursing homes would not have been made. Um, we probably had to go through this process of learning that this was not a respiratory disease so that people wouldn't be put on ventilators anymore and all of that. But it would have been better, obviously, uh, if it had been done in the way it's like, I am your, I'm the president uh, and I am telling you as adults and people in this country uh, what the condition is as far as we know. There's a lot we don't know, but there are some mitigating palliative measures that we can take. By the way, but the response would have been? Yeah. He's trying to scare us to change the story from Ukraine. Right. Or, yeah, or, right. Uh, although impeachment had already failed. But yes, at anything that he did and has done. But again, this is where in the long term, yes, uh, he is responsible for the low, for the the fact that nobody trusts him. I mean, I, completely. I mean, it, honestly, I know that the deep state is bad and all of this, but, you know, he, if he is not a trustworthy person, He's the one who made himself an untrustworthy person, ultimately, by his inconstancy and all of that. Now, that doesn't mean that he couldn't have, you know, changed opinions of him. You know, in the middle of crises, Rudy Giuliani was heading for, like, a relatively ignominious end of his eight-year term as mayor. Uh, He had, like, had this scandalous divorce, and he had quit the Senate race, and he was starting to look a little crazy and then 9/11 happened and his entire reputation turned on a dime because he reacted so with such uh, grace and power and thoughtfulness and could trump have done that of course he could have done that look at again look at andrew cuomo granted andrew cuomo was sort of the anti trump but i mean andrew cuomo was somebody that nobody liked until you know, until April. I mean, literally nobody liked him. They were afraid of him. And they might have thought that he was a pretty good governor, but nobody liked him. Uh, but he took a different tack. And, you know, could Trump have done that? Yeah, at least at least with the people who were still willing to, ha- to re- you know, revisit their opinions of him. Even with his <clears throat> pretty terrible performance, the president had a, a substantial job approval bounce. Um, I'm looking at RCP's Real Clear Politics average of his job approval rating. And by March 30th, it was the lowest, It the gap was the lowest it had ever been with his disapproval rating at just 2.3% below his approval rating. Yeah. Um, his his yeah. approval rating at that point was in the averaging around 48%, which was just a rally around the flag effect, but he certainly could have made it more um, durable. Right. Um, so let's move on and talk about the the fact that uh, we have yet another nonsense study, the purpose of which is to scare everybody and get Biden elected, as far as I can tell, and to attack red state voters and people who refuse to live the lives that they are being told they should live by, you know... Uh, by our metrosexual elite, which is this study of the Sturgis motorcycle rally and its aftermath. Um, Christine, you you uh, you have been a, a, a student of this uh, event and and the study and all that. Can you uh, can you fill us in? Um, well, the motorcycle rally is obviously a very big cultural event um, for lots of people, um, and it's it. it it's probably the perfect distillation of what a blue state technocratic elite, uh, particularly media professional, uh, would has kind of despised for a very long time. So that is actually the context for this. So the study itself, A, was not peer reviewed, um, was sort of pushed out there as, as clear. I mean, it, it's one of the clearer cases of kind of effective propaganda that I've seen. And I would direct everyone to a very good analysis um, 
in Reason Magazine by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Uh, she basically uh, broke it all down in a in, in very straightforward thing. Because the thing that was that that I think a lot of people were concerned about is that um, it was called this sort of super spreader event, right? We've heard this phrase here and there, but they also put attached a cost to it of twelve billion dollars. Okay. Right, and we should say what it said. So what it said was that the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally led to 260,000 uh, positive new cases of, of, of corona. And that it was, which, which of course they then said were 20% of all the new cases were from this one super spreader event. And again, for context, the other, the only other super spreader events we've been having in this country have been George Floyd Black Lives Matter protest rallies all summer, right? And we've talked about how there actually haven't been as many new cases that, that we can track, but there's a lot of discussion among people who are still concerned about those events, um, about whether in fact the mask wearing is effective given the context. So again, this is another- well, How can you event. track those cases if you can't ask them where they've been? Exactly. We actually, New York public State policy. public policy for, for uh, uh, COVID tra- trackers was to not even ask if they'd attended a protest because that was somehow some violation. So the context for looking at the Sturgis red state motorcycle rally is entirely through a prism of a kind of politically ideologically motivated uh, effort to make red states look like they're irresponsible. That doesn't set aside the question of whether the, in fact, people were, you know, wearing masks and doing all the stuff they should have done. That's a separate issue. But this study is, is bunk. Even Christy Noam, the governor was like, this is not uh, science. It's science fiction. Um, She's not wrong. It's, yeah, there were 260 cases in in her state. Right, and there were also public that hosted the event. There, yeah, and there were a lot of other uh, other things going on at the same time in the state that could have been looked at by researchers as other possible reasons for this very mild spike that occurred. So. Yeah, they use some they use some preposterous thing where they track uh, uh, phone. Uh, I don't know. They use pings. cell phone pings. Well, they to and they assume, where right. people went, and then they then they counted the number of new cases where they went, and, and they course, assumed it was caused by Sturgis. That was the assumption right. that's completely yeah. unverifiable given their own yeah. research methods. Yeah. They just assumed right. that. Yeah, because like one of the places that most a lot of people came from is Los Angeles County, right? Why? Because yeah, they rode so their motorcycles. Motorcycle. They rode their motorcycles from <laughs> Los Angeles County, and then they came back to Los Angeles County. And who knows why people? Why there? Nobody really knows why there was a bit of a spike in Los Angeles County in August. But the idea that it came from Sturgis, and by the way, the other the other thing here is that as as we've been going into this granularly for month month to month, Sturgis was an outdoor event, you know. Um, it is very clear, it seems very clear associatively now that the danger from COVID is an, is, is an indoor danger because, of course, if it is airborne and it is passed through, you know, spit bubbles or whatever you want to call them, obviously they need to remain uh, static and, you know, sit in the air so that other people can breathe them in. Well, if Look, you're out, a- yeah. It is a mistake to analyze this as though it's rational or based on science or data. It is not. It is a cultural matter. It is a cultural signifier. You can go outside and you can have a a line dancing party with your friends as long as your politics are right, but you can't go trick-or-treating. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can't go to a motorcycle rally. Yeah. But you can't go vote in person, except now you kind of can because that was a really bad idea and it could have negative adverse electoral consequences. All of this is politics. None of it is about public health and we should start treating it like a political issue because everyone else is. I'm not going to feel like a sucker anymore trying to pretend as though this is a public health matter when no one else is treating this like a public health matter. Well, and it's why uh, uh, Americans faith in the media as an institution with regard to getting information about COVID and the pandemic is at an all time low. It's like people just don't believe it. They do not believe what they read. And honestly, after seeing the the way that this story was covered and this, this extremely flawed uh, study was covered, they shouldn't. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like an anti-vaxxer type, you know, QAnoner, no, but, but it, you should have a huge amount of skepticism. Noah's right about all of these stories. Well, one more point about the story. So they, they estimate the story estimates that, um, the public health cost was something like would be it was twelve billion dollars yeah. from this, right? Now that assumes that each one of the science fiction number of cases in this 
required hospitalization. That everyone yeah. had a severe case that required hospitalization. Well, and, and speaking of hospitalizations, I mean, we might have mentioned this earlier in the week, but a lot of the new numbers coming out about uh, COVID cases on college campuses have also been hyped up as, oh, my God, look at this nightmare, all these new cases. It's terrible. And there are zero hospitalizations mm-hmm. so far, which is a great thing. Like it shows that the, vi- the virus in healthy younger people has a milder um, uh, effect, which is good, but it's being billed as, you know, we're going to have another spike. This is going to go kill people. This is terrible. Okay, so I'm on the New York Times' webpage, homepage, right? And so the stories, most of the stories are Trump lied, Trump this, blah, 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 minimizing the virus, right? And then right above it, United States, new cases, 33,201, 14-day change, minus 13%. We're now into the fourth week of steady declines every single day in the 14-day change of 13%. New deaths down 22%. The number's large, by the way. It's 1,176. But the 14-day change is down 22%. So we are screaming and yelling about the severity of the virus and the nightmare of super spreading and all of this in the midst of the refusal to stress the fact that clearly the virus is on a downturn. Now, the fall's coming. There may be an upsurge. That's what everybody's worried about. There is no upsurge. There but is yeah, no I mean, the, case the growth. Story, the story is not is not case growth necessarily, and I, I think everybody should be worried about the second wave. The second wave is upon them in Europe, and these colleges now that are shutting down and sending kids back home when they have an outbreak are doing exactly what they shouldn't do. Right. So yes, they should keep them world. on campus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Right. But the story is not case growth or, or case declines. It is outcomes in hospitals. And right. Outcomes in hospitals are profoundly better yeah. than they were at any point in the spring. So, so yeah, so they're not trustworthy. The coverage is not trustworthy. And you can understand why it is that a Trump, that a, that a Trump voter would be looking at this and basically saying, so screw all of you. Like, I'm not listening to you. I can't, I, you know... I don't. I can't believe a word that you're saying. And somehow they're being hoaxed by Fox News. They're not being hoaxed. They're being hoaxed by the New York Times. I mean, it's it's not a hoax either. None of this is a hoax. But you know, but it takes some sleuthing uh, on the part of an average citizen who has a billion other things to worry about and deal with. It takes some sleuthing on their part to to f- work their way through these stories to realize that. Right. Um, what that the 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 mainline headlines are not exactly um, reflective of what's happening, and that's why Trump talking to Woodward was such a toxic decision for him, because it is going to remind people seven weeks before election day <clears throat> that he downplayed the virus. It will remind people who are not following this on an hourly basis right. like us that he downplayed the virus. It will cause them to question why he did that. They're not going to do the sleuthing to find out why he might have done it or give him necessarily the benefit of the doubt. Being reminded of missteps and mistakes during his presidency is exactly what Biden needs, because not only does it make it impossible, as Christine says, for Biden to be the focus of the stories about whether or not he is potentially fit or not fit to be president, But because people have short memories, and if the whole thing is Trump did this, Trump did that, Trump did the other thing, and his answers on Twitter are things like, don't underestimate Kim Jong-un, which is what he said this morning. He's really healthy. Don't underestimate him. It's like, great. You know what? I won't underestimate him, and I'm going to let the other guy deal with him because you're a crazy person (laughs) who likes Kim Jong-un. I mean – you know, remember three years ago when basically the entire, you know, people were starting to like sleep in fallout shelters because mm-hmm. they thought Trump was going to start a war with North Korea. You know, it's like as uh, as, as somebody would say, Halavai, that it should be that. Now, now he's like, now he's, you know, Mr. I love North Korea and and murdering uncles and, and, and you know, and Kim Jong starving everybody to death. And he loves Erdogan because, as he says to Woodward, I don't know what it is. These tough guys, they like me and I like them. <laughs> well, great. You know, that's really fantastic. That's what, you know, 
he didn't need to talk to Woodward to give Woodward material to publish a book that's going to come out two months before the election to remind people who aren't paying that much attention of his attitudes and thought processes. Maybe he can't prevent it from coming out himself because he has no self-control and he'll be on Twitter for two months and there'll be debates and everything. But what are the debates going to be about? The debates in two weeks, two weeks, I believe it's two weeks from today is the first uh, presidential debate on the 29th. I, I, if I have the, maybe I have the dates wrong, but, or maybe it's three weeks. I don't know. Anyway, it's the 29th of September. Now, 10,000 things can happen between now and then, but he is going to have to answer questions about what he said to Woodward. Did he downplay the virus? Did it? It's going to be 45 minutes on the virus. And by the end of those 45 minutes, he is going to be in a hole. Now, can he climb out of the hole? Yes. Structurally, can he win this race? Yes. Can, you know, are the issues the thing that are going to kill him? Probably not. But he didn't need this trouble and he brought it upon himself. And I, you know, Tucker Carl's can can spend a week saying this was all Lindsey Graham's fault. Um, it's not Lindsey Graham's fault. Did we mention Donald Trump's self-defense of himself in his tweets this morning? Um, no, we didn't. So you, should, you should talk about the it, tweets there. This is a quote. <laughs> if he thought, if talking about Bob Woodward, quote, if he thought they were so bad or dangerous, why didn't he immediately report them in an effort to save lives? So let's just stop and think on that for a second. The president's defense here is, well, why didn't they stop me? Well, that's that's not a self. I needed a timeout. Someone just put me on the naughty chair. defense. <laughs> It's like you know, you know, I'm I'm crazy. You know, I was doing this crazy thing. Why didn't you try to stop me? That's really on you. That's a cry for help. No. Well, but I think, but I think <laughs> well, the... that's like his story on the campaign trail. What story did he tell every at every rally? Right. It was the scorpion and the frog. Right. He told right. that at every or what the snake. The what snake. was that 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 poem? You knew I was a snake when you met right. me. <clears throat> but I also think that defense is attached to the idea. Well. If they thought I was what I was doing was so crazy, why didn't they stop me? Maybe it's because they didn't think it was so crazy. Right. Well, I think that's that's his that's that's what he intends right. it to sound like. It doesn't really sound that way to me. I don't know. Uh, it's a kind of gaslighting. I mean, it literally is. Who do you believe, me or your lying eyes? It's well. It, I said it. it Obviously, Woodward thought it was totally fine because he didn't reveal it at the time. And it's rather Woodward's like, ho, 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 a million copies in the first week. And, uh, That's what I got here. That's what Woodward thought when he came out of his mouth. He's like, I'm going to make so much money. But also, I am making money like no one has ever made money before. But I mean, not to channel the, the you know, unicorn of this election, you know, the suburban lady voter, but there's a sense in which there, you get to a point with Trump where, I mean, I know we all talk about like disaster fatigue and, you know, uh, in, in the media, but if you're a, that voter who's not quite sure or has, you know, some reservations about the Democrats taking back the White House, you look, you look at all these, you know, you look at this news cycle with Trump and it's really like dealing with a dysfunctional boyfriend or, you know, where, you know, he's, he's hanging out with the wrong crowd or praising the wrong crowd. You try to tell him, you know, no, this is not a good guy. And he's like, oh, he's tough. I love this guy, you know, or, you know, he does something outrageous and then tries to tell you that actually, if it was so bad, why didn't you stop him? I mean, there's a weird dysfunctionality that is quite intimate when you read his Twitter feed on a regular basis, which one shouldn't do too much, but it's it's interesting. Right. It just it's not going to win those voters over. It's it's repellent to those voters. Well, I I mean, this gets to this is something that we have we started this podcast in 2016. He became president in 2017, and every week when we're just doing it once a week, then we're doing it twice a week. We said, what is he doing? He's going to need more voters. He's going to need more voters to win in 2020. What is he doing to reach them? And obviously that dysfunctional boyfriend thing is perfectly fine with the 42% or 43% or 44% of Americans who are almost assuredly going to vote for him. But what about the 3% more that he needs? And he has never done anything. And how he uses levers the next two months to get those people on his side is very, very, un, you know, just gets more and more unclear by the day. 
I mean, it's a re-election campaign. The incumbent likes to energize and rev up the base and with a side helping of depress the other guy's vote, right? That's the formula. That's the winning formula. That's what works. But what the president's doing right now, it seems, is focusing a lot on the base. But people in the base that should be pretty solid, putting out this now, uh, this list of, of pr- potential Supreme Court appointees, three of whom are sitting Republican senators with pretty high profiles, all of whom are sitting, staring down the barrel of a 2024 run, is um, disconcerting if you think that the president is trying to appeal to a base and not just, you know, trying to clear the field for Don Jr. in 2024. Um, it God. suggests... I mean, that's a silly theory, but it suggests that the president's looking, looking at his base and a little, a little curious about how enthused they are about this vote. Well, that's, uh, could well be. At this late date. At this late date. That's a bad sign. Okay. So we will be back tomorrow for Christine, Abe, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.